I, King of heaven, my treasure, thou art. That is the heart of wisdom. I have one verse to read this morning. Proverbs 28, 26. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Well, the theme, uh, the theme that we're considering this morning is foolishness. And I'm happy to finally be teaching on a subject in which I have great expertise. The fact is that we all have plenty of expertise when it comes to foolishness. What we struggle with is wisdom. Foolishness is the antithesis, it's the opposite of wisdom. And wisdom, as we saw last week, is the overriding theme of the entirety of the book of Proverbs. It's one of the central themes of all of Scripture. So it makes perfect sense that this book would have a lot to say about foolishness as well because of the juxtaposition, the contrast between those two ideas. The words fool, foolish, foolishness, and folly occur a total of 97 times in the book of Proverbs. That's an average of three times per chapter. So we are certainly not going to be able to examine this morning every instance of those words. But what we will do is make a reasonable attempt to break down the topic of foolishness as Proverbs present it and to look at some of the the key ideas associated with it, like what it is, where it comes from, what it looks like in practice, what kind of damage it does, and probably most importantly, what is God's cure for it. The essence of foolishness is uh, something that's sort of elusive, I think, to, uh, to our culture. In common uses, uh, usage, there are at least three different ideas that are kind of lumped together and called foolishness. But the Bible's more specific when it talks about fools and foolishness. So let's start by getting our definitions straight. Sometimes we use the word foolishness when what we actually mean is ignorance. (laughs) Ignorance is the insufficiency of information. Sometimes we use the word foolishness when what we actually mean is simple-mindedness. But from a biblical perspective, foolishness is neither of those things. Foolishness, Foolishness is not about the absence of good information. It is also not about the absence of native intelligence. Foolishness is about the absence of honor toward God. It is a function of a rebellious heart toward God and toward the things of God. Romans 12, uh, excuse me, Romans 1, verses 21 to 22 says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. They raised their fists against God. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, men became fools. Psalm 14, 1-4 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. That's the, the very essence of foolishness. is the, the, the disregard and the denial of God, of God's character, of God's way, of God's revelation of Himself. They do not call upon the Lord because they see no value in doing so. 
Men became fools when they suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness, professed to be wise with the wisdom that does not come from God, and exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And interestingly, in that same passage, the first manifestation of exchanging the truth of God for a lie is that they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And the first, the first image that they worshipped was an image of man. Jeremiah 10, this is the passage from which I got the title, Foolishness, the Discipline of Delusion. Jeremiah 10, verses 6 through 8, declares, There is none like thee, O Lord, thou art great, and great is thy name and might. Who would not fear thee, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is thy due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like thee. But they, mankind, are altogether stupid. Literally, that means brutish, like a grazing animal. And I love this phrase, foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. That phrase, discipline of delusion, is powerful and pointed. The King James Version translates it, doctrine of vanities. What it speaks of is the intentionality of foolishness. Foolishness is deliberate. It is systematic. It proceeds from prideful rebellion against that which is true and good, against that which God has made known of His character and of His way. Proverbs 19.3 says, The foolishness of man subverts his way, and his heart rages against the Lord. Proverbs 28.26 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool but he who walks wisely will be delivered. So man rejects the knowledge of God and chooses the knowledge of self. So being a fool is not the same thing as being naive or ignorant or simple-minded. Being a fool is the rejection of truth. It is a preference for falsehood. It places trust in self rather than in God. It is a discipline of delusion. I should probably touch at this point on the very forceful words that our Lord speaks in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount when he, he says that the one who calls his brother a fool is guilty of murder and worthy of hell. I certainly do not believe that Jesus was saying, don't take a man at his word if he calls himself godless. If a man tells you he has no use for God... He has identified himself as a fool based on God's definition. And you can pretty much take that at face value. But I believe Jesus' point is that in the absence of such a declaration, you and I don't get to judge another person's standing before God. It may be quite obvious that a person is engaging in foolishness, but we all engage in foolishness. So we don't get to declare that our brother is a fool, that is a godless person, just because he's acting like one. We may suspect it. We are not authorized to declare it. Another distinction I should mention is that there's a very close connection in the Bible between being a fool and doing foolish things, but those are not exactly the same concept. As we've just seen, the Bible speaks in very forceful terms about the the spirit of prideful rejection of God 
that identifies a person as a fool. Biblically speaking, a fool is one who does not know God and does not want to know God. Foolishness, on the other hand, is universal. It can and does show up even in the lives of us who are the redeemed of God. There are numerous warnings and rebukes in Proverbs and throughout the Bible that speak about the behavior of fools and the consequences of that behavior, but that are addressed to God's own people. Now bear in mind that God has to teach wisdom to people like you and me. (laughs) So he tends to keep things pretty simple. He says, here's what a wise man is like. Here's what a fool is like. Since you belong to me, I expect you to act like this guy and not like this guy. God's repeated call to us is to act in keeping with our true identity as his redeemed, not to act as if we are not redeemed. Just look at the first several verses of Romans chapter 6. He says, shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? And then he says, may it never be. You have been buried with Christ in the likeness of his death, and you have been raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection to newness of life. Therefore, therefore, reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. Be who you are, not who you're not. That's the the consistent appeal of Scripture to those who belong to Christ. With a few exceptions for the remainder of this message, I will not attempt to distinguish between verses that talk about fools and verses that talk about foolishness. (laughs) There's a whole lot of common ground between those two kinds of verses because the manifestations and the earthly consequences of both are pretty much the same. All right. The first thing I'd like to consider regarding foolishness itself is the origin of foolishness. How is it and when is it that people become foolish? The answer of Scripture is people don't have to become foolish. They already are. We saw in Romans 1 how Paul explained that mankind as a whole became fools, but from the time Adam and Eve first sinned, that was the condition of mankind, all men. It's universal to men from birth. We all inherit the sin nature of Adam, and thus we all start out as fools. We start out in rebellion against the things of God, and we have no personal knowledge of God until God changes that. Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Foolishness is the default state of man. From birth. Okay, so we start out foolish, not wise. Some of us may be novices at wisdom, but none of us are novices at foolishness. Second major point is the way of foolishness, and that is what fools do. We're going to spend some time on this because there's a lot of content in Proverbs on this point. <laughs> what do fools look like in practice? First, fools reject wise counsel and correction. This is kind of right at the heart of foolishness. Men profess to be wise and prove themselves fools. They reject the wisdom that comes from God, so you could pretty much expect that they're going to reject godly counsel. 
Proverbs 15.5 says, A fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who regards reproof is prudent. He's wise. Proverbs 12.5 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. You see the element of humility there? It's, it's critical. Proverbs 17.10, A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. There's this this resistance to the things that constitute wisdom. And at the heart of that resistance is a simple failure of godly humility. The fool rejects the counsel of others precisely because he already considers himself wise. And one of the great ironies of mankind is that children think they're wise from the very beginning. And so they don't understand why their parents are constantly harping at them about wisdom. And God says foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. The rod of discipline will drive it far from him. You know what, guys? The sooner you own up to that, the quicker you become wise. One of the great proofs that our culture as a whole has set aside wisdom in favor of foolishness is the value, or rather the lack of value, that it places on the aged. Our culture has cast aside the wisdom of age and experience, and our young people are paying a grievous price for it. When I was a kid, and some of you are going to laugh at this, the culture's popular image in fathers and husbands was captured in characters like Ward Cleaver and Steve Douglas, and George Bailey. Now, if you've seen that great Frank Capra movie, It's a Wonderful Life, you know that George was wise in some respects at the beginning of the movie. He was kind, and he was loving, and he was generous, but he lacked wisdom on a few points, particularly when it came to handling really painful and unjust things in life. But an angel named Clarence helped him become much wiser. And he paid attention and he learned. Today, the culture's popular image of fathers and husbands is captured in characters like Homer and Hank. You think I'm exaggerating? Children have always had a tendency at various points to question the wisdom of their parents That's part of growing up. It's part of sorting things out for yourself. But today, kids who are skeptical about the value of age and experience have the full faith and support of the entire culture telling them to pay little or no attention to their parents and certainly not to pay attention to those old gray-haired codgers who are so stuck in their ways that they haven't figured out that times have changed. So age and experience are seen as a disadvantage, not as an advantage. This is a big deal. Times have indeed changed, but you know what has not changed? God has not changed. And thus none of the things that have God as their one and only source have changed. That includes love, truth, wisdom, righteousness, Purity, mercy, compassion, justness, holiness, 
Not one single thing that constitutes genuine holiness and godliness has changed, nor will it change, because those things proceed from God, and God does not change. And so, those around you who have spent the most time contemplating what God declares about Himself, and who have the most experience seeking, however imperfectly, to put His character into practice, those people are a gold mine to those of you who have not been walking with the Lord for quite so long. The young man or woman who values wisdom over foolishness will not merely accept the counsel of those who have walked with the Lord for many years. He will seek it out. He'll go after that counsel. My young brothers and sisters, do not follow the insanity of this culture by failing to seek out and to heed the counsel of those who have walked with the Lord a lot longer than you have. Now, before I move to the next point, I have a question for you, and I want one of the guys in high school or junior high to answer this one. It's not a trick question, so if you're paying attention, it'll be an easy answer. But it's a very important answer. I'm going to ask the question, then I'm going to read a passage, Psalm 119, verses 97 to 104. Here's the question. In your own words, tell me what two things can make a young man wiser than people who are much older than he is. What two things can make a young man wiser than people who are much older than he is? Psalm 119, 97 to 104. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed, literally, I have kept watch over your precepts. I have restrained my feet... And by the way, there's a reason I put the gap in here. Remember, two questions? Two answers, parts to the answer. I've restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. What two things can make you wiser than the aged. Come on, somebody tell me. I can wait all day. Are you in high school? (laughs) That voice sounded a little too deep. Y'all get the question. What two things can make you wiser than people who are older than you. Come on. I'll even accept the answer from, from someone younger than junior high. Do I see a hand? Is that Travis? Go for it, Travis. Keeping watch over God's Word and keeping away from evil ways. That's right. Here are the two things. Meditate on the Word of God and do it. If those two things are true of you, you'll be wiser than 99% of the old people in the world. And you'll have, you'll have justification for expecting people to listen to you 
when you have something to say instead of to treat you as a kid. Paul told Timothy, don't let them despise your youth. And in the same book, he said to Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If you know the Word of God, and thereby know the character of God, and if you do that which you behold of His character, that makes you wise. And it makes you wiser than the vast majority of people on this earth, regardless of their age. You want to be respected? Do those things. What fools do? Well, fools do not act on the wisdom they hear, and that kind of proceeds from that second answer. Jesus said in Matthew 7, this is not from Proverbs, but it's, uh, it's a good proverbial statement. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. Now this may seem so obvious that it's hardly worth saying, but it's actually of very great importance to us as children of God. There are far too many Christians who consider themselves wise and godly merely because they can repeat things that are wise and godly things that they see in Scripture. That has about as much real value as saying to a dying man, I'm not a doctor, but I played one once on TV. It's not wisdom if you haven't actually done it. And that is borne out by what James says, James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. He says, prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, which is, by the way, a much better thing to look at than your own face, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. That's wisdom in practice, and it brings great, great benefit. Fools do not act on the wisdom they hear. Fools also are quick to anger. This is a big one. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Proverbs fourteen twenty nine. Twenty nine eleven says, A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. Proverbs 20, verse 3 says, Keeping away from strife is honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. Are you quick to anger? Do you look for the good intentions in what people say to you and do to you, or are you prone to see hurtfulness? Do you pounce at the first sign of a hurt, or are you slow to anger? Your answers to those questions will tell you whether you are wise or foolish. God declared to Moses that he, God, is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Exodus 34, verse 6. And beloved, we who are slaves of the Most High God are not greater than our Master. For us to be quick to anger when we who were sinners and enemies of God have received His grace and forgiveness, and when we continue daily to receive His amazing forbearance, that is the height of hypocrisy 
and foolishness. We must be slow to anger. As I've been uh, studying and preparing this week, God has uh, kind of blasted me over one aspect of that point, and that is I'm pretty forbearing with people about sin, except the sin of not being forbearing with people about sin. I'm fairly forgiving except toward people who aren't forgiving. It's like saying I hate haters. It's kind of self-contradictory. And I, I ask for your prayers for that, quite honestly. I struggle with that. And it has manifested itself even this week. I've received the grace and mercy and forgiveness and forbearance of God. And if I don't extend it to the next person, I prove myself a fool. At least prove myself foolish. Fools delight in sin. <laughs> I love this verse, Proverbs 10:23. Doing wickedness is like sport to a fool, <laughs> and so is wisdom to a man of understanding. Fools delight. They love it. They love sin. They find it lots of fun. Fools deny the debt that their sin creates. This one really uh, got my Got my interest. Um, Holman Christian Standard does a great job of translating this. It says, Fools mock at making restitution, <laughs> but there is goodwill among the upright. The word translated making restitution is the Old Testament word for guilt offering. The guilt offering was a form of the sin offering that constituted restitution, repayment to God for robbing him of something that belonged to him or robbing another man of something that belonged to him. See, all of God's people were God's possession. And so you robbed one of them, that meant you robbed God. And you had to pay both of them back. If you stole something from a fellow Israelite, God required that you present a guilt offering for defrauding God. And on that very same day that you did so, you presented restitution to the person you had robbed. And that always was way over and above what you had taken. The idea in this verse is that the fool scoffs at the notion of making restitution to God and to others for the damaging impact of his sin. But the one who is upright, wise, godly, he shows goodwill. He does that which serves the well-being of others. He is eager to make restitution for a wrong. Look at Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the guy who realizes that someone might have something against him. And he drops his sacrifice at the altar and he runs to where that person is and he reconciles with them. That's the level of urgency that God places on making it right when we have done a wrong. Even if we think someone thinks we've done a wrong. The fool diminishes and dismisses the gravity and destructive impact of his sin to others. The wise man is quick to confess wrongdoing, eager to reconcile, and makes no effort to withhold whatever God requires of him to make restitution both to God and to men because of his wrongdoing. That's a pretty dramatic contrast. Here's another big one. Fools are careless and hasty. That means they're in a hurry. There's a great old Johnny Mercer song that begins with the words, Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. 
That line was first penned by an 18th century poet named Alexander Pope. Johnny Mercer was a literate man. That line captures the spirit of what Proverbs says about the catastrophic absence of caution that characterizes the foolish. Proverbs 14, 16 says, A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. The fool is impulsive because he arrogantly trusts in his own impulses rather than in godly wisdom. He has a fleeting thought and he says, Wow, that looks good. I think I'll act on that. I say this especially to the young people and particularly to the young men in our midst, but it applies to every single one of us. It takes years to establish an honorable reputation and it takes seconds to utterly destroy it. And that means you must proceed through this life thoughtfully, cautiously. You must measure your actions before you take them. It doesn't mean you're supposed to be indecisive. (laughs) It means make sure your decisions proceed from wisdom and not from foolishness. So the more practiced you get at wisdom, the quicker you can make decisions. In everything that matters, pray first, then think, and measure your course of action against the godly wisdom that you find in His Word, and then act. So again, the more you know of that godly wisdom, the sooner you can come to the point of action. There's far too much at stake to take this lightly. I've seen men create a respected reputation over many years and do great good in the lives of other people and then wreck it all in an instant because they acted on a selfish, self-indulgent impulse, especially a sexual impulse. But that's not the only way to destroy a reputation. In fact, you can do it very, very quickly with nothing more than words. Impulsiveness is foolishness. Thoughtfulness is wisdom. Which is true of you? Do you prayerfully and carefully measure a proposed course of action against the godly wisdom that God has revealed in His Word before you act, or do you... Leap before you look. Before we move on, I want to go back to that issue of words and how they factor into this principle. Fools speak carelessly and they speak hastily. A lot of the themes in this book overlap. Uh, We will have a whole message that's devoted to the power of words, both negative and positive. But... uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't make the connection here between foolishness, impulsiveness, and destructive words. Proverbs 29.20 says, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Wow. (laughs) That would seem to be saying that hastiness in speech is the very height of foolishness. We think of uh, actions as the height of foolishness, but... It's amazing how powerful words are. Proverbs 15.2 says, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. 15.28 says, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. (laughs) Look at the verbs there. On the wise side, man ponders. He considers how to make knowledge acceptable before he 
speaks. On the foolish side, he just spews it out. It's like an uncontrolled flood. Do you think before you speak? That question matters most when you're tempted not to think before you speak. It matters most when you are feeling threatened or angry or anxious. At those times, are you careful to measure your words against the standard of godly wisdom and to speak only that which reflects the character of God. Ephesians 29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, that means for building up, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do your words give grace to those who hear them? It matters. It matters a lot. (laughs) James says, talking to those whom he calls my brothers, that means us, He says, for every creature, animal, or bird, reptile, or fish, sorry, I don't have a slide, is tamed and has been tamed by man. But he says, no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who are made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And then he says, my brother's These things should not be this way. Our words matter. Fools are lazy. This one's probably no surprise. (laughs) Going over to Ecclesiastes 4.5, it says, The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Proverbs 6, 9 through 11 doesn't use the word fool, but it's certainly talking about foolishness. It says, How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep. A little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. (laughs) Again, powerful images. Fools are enslaved to their foolishness. Proverbs 17, 16 says, Why is there a price in the hand of a fool to buy wisdom when he has no sense? (laughs) See, you can't buy wisdom. And a man who has no sense will not come, up, come upon it. Proverbs 27.22 says, though you, I love this one, Though you pound a fool in a mortar with a pestle, with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. There's a picture of a mortar and a pestle and some peppercorns, but you can think of them as fool chunks. You can grind them and you can get them as small as you want to, and they're still fool pieces, Right? The idea of resistance, resistance to wisdom is very powerful in the one who is a fool. Of course, the one who does not know God. Foolishness itself is pretty hard to eradicate, but God knows how to deal with it in those who belong to him. We'll come to that at the end here. All right, foolishness is impossible to hide. This is also very interesting. Love Ecclesiastes 10.3. By the way, Solomon, you know, that's, that's his stuff too. And again, Ecclesiastes says, Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking, and he demonstrates to everyone that he's a fool. All he has to do is walk around, and people can tell he's a fool. Proverbs thirteen sixteen: Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. The word displays, it means he spreads it out like on a table for everyone to see. 
By the way, if pretty much everyone around you who strikes you as wise is telling you that your course of action is foolish, you'd do well to pay attention. Foolishness is readily apparent to everyone except those who are being foolish. All right, let's, uh, that's several points about the way of a fool. There's a whole lot more that we could say, but again, 97 verses is a lot. How about the destructiveness of foolish to others? Foolishness destroys the people around you, and it is also destructive to you, and we'll consider both of those. Proverbs 10.14 says, Wise men store up knowledge like they've got plenty to pass around. But with the mouth of the foolish, ruin is at hand. That's what fools store up. They, they store up ruin for the people around them. And Proverbs has a whole lot to say about a couple of different roles with regard to the destructiveness of foolishness. And the first that I'm going to look at is the role of a woman, the destructiveness of a foolish woman. Proverbs 31 presents the heart of a godly and wise woman. It talks about the amazingly powerful impact that she has on her family, on her community, But Proverbs has a lot to say about the powerfully destructive impact of a foolish woman on her home, her family, and her community. Proverbs 14.1. Let me see if I've got this one. Yeah, look at this. The wise woman builds her house. The foolish tears it down with her own hands. That's a, a powerful image. Think of a woman slowly chiseling out the bricks of her house one at a time while she's alternating that with, you know, making meals and washing clothes and dealing with her kids and her husband. And then one day she removes that that brick that's just enough and the house just falls down on itself. That's the picture of the impact that a foolish woman has on her own household. Rather than being God's instrument of great blessing to her family, she brings destruction upon her family. Numerous other verses in Proverbs speak of the way foolishness is manifested in a foolish woman. And interestingly, most of those verses focus on contentiousness. The foolish woman is self-focused and insists on her own way, creating strife in her home rather than peace. Some great images here. Proverbs 21.9 and 25.24 say exactly the same thing. It is better to live in the corner in a corner of the roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Proverbs 21.19, it is better to live in a desert than with a contentious and vexing woman. Proverbs 27.15, a constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. It's like very slow waterboarding. Okay, that's the destructiveness of a foolish woman. Proverbs has a lot to say also about the destructiveness of a foolish child. And interestingly, probably not surprisingly, those verses focus on the child's impact on his or her parents. Proverbs 15.20 says, A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. 17.21 says, He who begets a fool does so to his sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. 17.25, a foolish son is grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore bore him. 19.13, 
This is really powerful. A foolish son is destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. One of the most predictable things about foolishness in a child is disregard for the impact of the child's choices on his or her parents. The fool says, it's my life and I'll do what I want, as if his choices impact only himself. The cultural acceptance of that mindset that places little or no value on honoring one's parents is yet another manifestation of the fact that foolishness has gained a big foothold in our culture. And by the way, this is a relatively new phenomenon. Even godless cultures have, by and large, throughout history, demanded that children protect the honor and reputation of parents. That is no longer the case. The foolish child says to his father and mother, why should I base my actions on protecting your honor and your reputation? That makes it all about you. And that makes you selfish. See, that would mean that I'm living for you instead of for me. Why would I want to do that? Why would you even want me to do that? That's what kids are saying. Because that's what the culture is telling them to say. And God's answer is, because it's wise and it's godly and it will result in honor to me, to God, and it will result in blessing for you as a child. Rather than curse, which would you prefer? It doesn't matter what the culture says. Which would you prefer? Because God is the one who's sovereign over blessing and curse. And by the way, the greatest example of one who's whose concern was for the glory and honor of his Father, is Jesus Christ. And he's our example in all things pertaining to godliness. If anyone deserved to pursue honor for himself, it was Christ. But everything that he did, everything that he spoke, he did and said for the honor of his Father, including going to the cross. The slave is not greater than his master. All right, foolishness is destructive to others. It's also destructive to the one who practices it. The personal consequences of foolishness, Proverbs 10.8, the wise of heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will be thrown down. Smackdown time. Proverbs 10.10, he who winks the eye causes trouble. And again, the same words, a babbling fool will be thrown down. The lips of the righteous feed many. So, see, the righteous, the wise, he, he not only has well-being in himself, but he's, he's passing that well-being around. But fools die for lack of understanding. They just shrivel up and die. Proverbs eleven twenty nine: He who troubles his own house will inherit wind. How would you like for that to be your inheritance? And the foolish will be servant to the wise-hearted. 14.3, in the mouth of, a fool, of the foolish is a rod for his back. The foolish, uh, excuse me, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. Judgments are prepared for scoffers and blows for the backs of fools. See, foolishness does not work out well for those who practice it. It looks really attractive sometimes, but it doesn't work well. Many Christians seem to think that they can engage 
in self-indulgent foolishness for a little while and that the outcome won't be all that bad. They think they can predict and control the result of their foolishness. But one of the problems inherent in foolishness is that it grievously underestimates the consequences of its own behavior. The path of foolishness that disregards the counsel of God is always, every moment, a path of death and not of life. However good it feels, it is a snare for your soul, and the deeper you get into it, the harder it is to get out. It consumes you, and this side of heaven it can destroy you, even if you're a child of God. Now God is at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. And he's a perfect father, and he knows how to discipline his children. So it's not hopeless for any of us, praise God. But the further you get into the snare of foolishness, the harder it is to get out. So isn't it better not to spend any time there at all? The outcome, of course, for those who are fools indeed, that is for those who do not know God and do not want to know God, is more catastrophic than we can even conceive. That outcome is everlasting destruction away from the presence of God and from the glory of His power. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 That outcome is the eternal experience of the complete absence of all that constitutes life and truth and wisdom and beauty and godliness and holiness and honor. If you're here today and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have not put aside any dependence on yourself to make yourself acceptable to God, doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, if you were were looking to please God from something that comes from yourself, or if you really haven't even cared about God at all, I pray with all my heart that you will humble yourself before Almighty God and you you will... Put your faith in the one and only provision for your sin that will ever exist, and that is the death of Christ in your place on the cross. He paid the penalty that you can never pay so that you can dwell in the presence of God forever. And by the way, that eternal life starts the moment you believe. Last thing before we get to the cure, I'll try to move quickly, is what happens when you hang out with fools? You may not be a fool yourself. You may not even be acting particularly foolishly. But what happens when you hang out with fools? Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Does, Does that sound like a maybe? That's what will happen if you hang out with fools. Proverbs 14.7 says, Leave the presence of a fool. Or you will not discern words of knowledge. In other words, you'll become foolish. Proverbs 17.12 says, Let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. It's a pretty powerful image. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. If you think it doesn't, you're wrong. Now, that doesn't mean you don't associate with unbelievers. It means you associate with unbelievers for a reason. The same reason that Jesus associated with harlots and tax gatherers and sinners. Because he came to seek and save that which was lost. That's why 
we have friendships with unbelievers. Not so that we can do what they do. Not so that we can share their activities. Certainly not so that we can learn from them. You want to learn from somebody? Find somebody older and wiser than you who has walked with the Lord for a long time. Grab them. Take them to lunch. Don't wait for them to take you to lunch. Take them to lunch and ask them to talk to you about wisdom. And even more importantly than that, get into the Word yourself personally. There is nothing more valuable that you will ever do with your time than to encounter God through that which He has made known of Himself. All right, the cure for foolishness. I know I'm over a little bit. We saw this verse at the beginning. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. The rod of discipline will drive it far from him. So that's the first part of the answer. The rod of discipline. You have to, God has to beat foolishness out of us in love. Not for our harm, but for our good. Hebrews chapter 12, when you read that whole long passage about discipline, it says that all discipline is sorrowful for the moment, but then it says, but in the end it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And it says that God disciplines us in order that we may share His holiness. Is that a worthy goal, to share the holiness of God? You bet. And you don't get there without discipline. Proverbs 30, verse 32, If you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you have plotted evil, put your hand over your mouth. In other words, shut up. 1 Corinthians 3.18, Let no man deceive himself. If any among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise. Ephesians 5.17 says, So then do not be foolish, but instead understand what the will of the Lord is. And those, those four verses right there are a gold mine in themselves. i got to close, so I'm not going to elaborate much. In three words, the cure for foolishness is humility before God. That's the opposite of what got mankind into this mess in the first place, according to Romans 1. Do you want to be wise instead of foolish? Then put your hand over your mouth. Stop pretending to be wise when you're not. Become foolish that you may become wise. In other words, recognize your own foolishness. Understand what the will and the way of God is. In short, get to know God better personally. It takes humility. You have to set aside self and pursue God with all you've got. And then you'll know wisdom. And then finally, act on what you come to know about Him. Be a doer of the Word, not a forgetful hearer. Work out His character and His priorities and His agenda in your life by the power of the Spirit who indwells you. <laughs> And beloved, then you will be wise. Dear Father, this is, this is just bedrock stuff. And we pray that you would not allow us to push it under the rug, to, to nod our heads and say, yeah, that sounds really great, and then to walk off and do what we've always done. Lord, there is, there is residue of foolishness in every single one of us. And we pray, Lord, that you would root it out and you would show it to us and you would make us humble so that we will see it for what it is and we will turn away from it and we will cling to you. We will, we will know that our very life is to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's life. That's wisdom. Father, 
Do not let us rest or be complacent in our foolishness. We ask it in Jesus' name. We ask it for his honor and for his sake. Amen.